The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? You were very kind of full of yourself, which was funny. I mean, (laughs) all things considered, your predicament that you were in. Um, Which Evan had no idea about. No, I had no idea about who I was. But it took you being full of yourself for me to even wonder. wonder. (laughs) So, you said you came in and you, you know, I don't know if any of you, probably some of you, been to an AA meeting and you go around in a circle and share and it got to Alexis and she was very beautiful. She had this old kind of movie star thing and the scarfs, you know, around her head and big sunglasses and I mean, she was definitely very beautiful and it gets to her and she says, oh my God, I got voted the like best celebrity mugshot in TMZ. I'm like so embarrassed (laughs) and I'm like, you got what? (laughs) That was a quick clip from this week's episode with my husband, Evan Haynes. Evan joined us once before on a very spur of the moment podcast um, episode, which we recorded when we did the reunion show at the very, very beginning of my podcast journey, which was right around a year ago. It's crazy that it's been a year and we've grown and grown into such a big and beautiful community. And for that, I am so grateful. But in this episode, we are diving into Evan's story and our uh, marriage and how we fell in love and what our marriage has looked like since. We're talking about treatment centers and the industry, recovery in general, and the messy parts of the industry and the really, really nasty things that are taking place and what we can all do to be better. And then in a couple of weeks, we also recorded a follow-up Q&A that we did live on Instagram, which is really fun. And I will be releasing that one in a couple of weeks. So I'm really looking forward to both of those. I know that for many of you, you are struggling. I personally am too. This is certainly not an easy situation, but I've been in isolation before. That time it was in a jail cell for an entire summer in solitary confinement. But I know how mentally taxing this is, whether you live at home and you feel really isolated or you're a mom of multiple kids and you're homeschooling. The struggle is real for us all. So As you all know, I'm all about community and you guys have been DMing me both on Instagram and in our private Facebook group. If you want to join that, you're welcome to. It's an amazing group. It's just the Recovering From Reality Facebook group. It's great. Um, Talking about how you're struggling. So I thought I need to do more for the community. And so my intention this week is to release my book um, in a downloadable format on, I believe on my website for free. So I should have information 
up about that either today, Monday, or uh, tomorrow. So that will be available for download for free. Um, And hopefully that will give you guys some inspiration. And if you want to do a deeper dive into your subconscious programming and to building up your toolbox so you have the necessary tools to get through these challenging times, I am... I don't even know how I came up with this, but I just decided that we're doing it, (laughs) even though it costs me so much time and money to put together. But um, I'm dropping the price of the Life Reset course. So the Life Reset course I developed and was planning on offering every other month. And it was priced at $500 for the month. So as of today, I have now made that course more accessible for the next 30 days while we're in quarantine. And I dropped the price to $39 a month. So um, hopefully these things will be able to provide you with some relief during this really stressful and challenging time. Um, And again, I'm always here if you need support. We have a Facebook group that I'm really active in and, and others are as well. You can always DM me on Instagram if you're needing additional support. I'm live on there often. The podcast is an amazing resource. Go back and listen to episodes that you haven't listened to before um, or, you know, read the book get into the work with a life reset course. Right now, I do believe that we are all being called to raise up in our consciousness. And the way we do that is by diving deep into our subconscious programming and belief systems. So with that, I will um, I will send you guys all love and light. And, you know, I am just holding space for you wherever you're at in this journey. And like I said, I'm always here if you need someone to talk to. All right. Have a good week. Don't hit that fast forward button. Bear with me for a second because I've got something really important to talk to you guys about. And that's my new hair. You guys know that recently I chopped off over eight inches of my hair, which was a major move. And since then, you've been sending me DMs asking me to do tutorials on how I get this effortlessly beachy, cute, chic, short hair. That's where the way comes in. I can't talk to you guys about styling tutorials without first talking to you about the importance of using good conditioner and shampoo for your hair. The way was created by celebrity stylist Jen Atkin. New York Times calls her the most influential hairstylist in the world. She wanted to create the first socially connected hair care brand to drive the conversations and innovations in hair. Shampoo and conditioners are all problem solution based, and there are so many options to choose from, but most people have multiple concerns that they want to address. All people, including yours truly, want the same outcome, healthier hair. Way wanted to simplify how you shop for your daily care. Each formula is created to be a one and done solution for your hair type to give your hair the healthiest, most manageable feeling ever. So they created new shampoos and conditioners for fine, medium, and thick hair. Bonus, 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 they use eco-friendly packaging. 
I personally use the medium shampoo and conditioner because I have overall thick hair, but fine individual strands. The medium shampoo and conditioner cleanses and nourishes to leave my hair feeling soft, shiny, and frizz-free. Babusu oil smooths and adds shine and coconut oil strengthens and hydrates. It's color safe, sulfate-free, and cruelty-free. Right now, you can go and check out all of these products on their website. Shop the new shampoos and conditioners for fine, medium, and thick hair at theway.com. That's spelled O-U-A-I. And don't forget to use the code REALITY to receive three free samples with your order. Now, back to the episode. I thought it'd be cool to give you the opportunity to come on the podcast or to welcome you to the podcast to kind of share your story and your experience because it is the one that is really remarkable. And then I know so many people have questions about our marriage and our relationship and how we met. And I also want to dive into addiction treatment and what that looks like and a whole plethora of things. So why don't you give everybody a little bit of just like a, you know, your five minute share on like your experience and what brought you into recovery? Okay. Well, thanks for having me. It's <laughs> nice to be here. Um, He's so Canadian and freaking proper. It's insane. I was born in Canada. Um, I moved here about 15 years ago, but I'm very Canadian, uh, and which just means we're very nice people. We're very polite. Um, and we like to drink a lot too. And, uh, you know, in my family, there was lots of drinking. And when I you know, was of a certain age, I drank too. And in fact, I didn't even know I had a problem till I came down here. And, you know, after a night of drinking, we would drive around, you know, with a can of bear spray and a baseball bat and crash cars. And this, to us, that was kind of normal. But I ended up in L.A. County Jail. Uh, one night after crashing into a car and thank God everyone was okay. I, I could have killed somebody. I remember telling my cellmate that I thought I had a problem and I needed to switch to beer. He was sort of like a, a street kid had been picked up the night before in a Starbucks drunk and disorderly and down in Venice. And uh, there we were, me and him. And I was telling him, I think I had a problem. So I did. I, I got out later that week and Drank beer the first night, drank beer the second night, and the third night I was back at the bar and had a shot of tequila or something and was in another blackout. And I would get kind of, i get violent and angry. And I remember when I um, talked to a friend who I was going to meet the next uh, Sunday and go to my first meeting with. I'd been court-ordered, but I was genuinely curious. And I said, I just want to know why I'm so angry. And he said, don't worry, don't worry, you'll figure all that out. And I got to the meeting and and uh, it was friendly and people were laughing and afterwards people were cleaning up and people had all these commitments I could see, setting up coffee and, you know, um, there was this whole thing and everyone was involved. And, and I remember thinking, God, if I could just be useful, if I could just be relaxed in social situations. I'll, I'll try this out. This is interesting for sure. And, you know, hearing that first person speak up at the podium, you know, some girl, I don't remember what she said, but she was speaking my language. And it was like this, this group of people who were just like me, these kind of misfits. We had 
you know, often difficult childhoods or we were really sensitive. And, and, um, so here I was, I'd kind of found my people. Now it took a lot longer than that to, you know, find my tribe, so to speak. But, you know, I would, I definitely found my, my people and, uh, you know, I really haven't had a drink or, uh, anything ever since. That was, it'll be 15 years, uh, in November. One thing that you, um, <laughs> one thing that you so conveniently skipped over was all of your childhood trauma. <laughs> well, I mentioned it. I <laughs> do mentioned you want to go there or well, do you not want to go there? No, I'm, I'm happy to go there. Okay. So, I mean, I did mention it in that I think for a lot of us and not a hundred percent, maybe 90%, um, you know, suffered from, I know what you talk about and a lot to your audience, but adverse childhood experiences. And I had that. Um, I think the other 10% are highly sensitive people. And then you have people like, I think both of us who kind of have both these highly sensitive, uh, empathic people who, you know, had difficult childhood. So I had that, you know, I had, I had parents with mental health and addiction problems and, uh, you know, I didn't have the kind of, I guess, love and safety that, you know, kids should have. And, um, you know, definitely affected me. My mom in particular, I guess, was, um, had a lot of mental health problems. And so when I was 14, she took her life. And, and that was definitely like a watershed moment for me where, you know, already I'd been, and what a, let me just say, a beautiful person, incredible artist, intelligent, funny, um, a magical person and, you know, very tortured. And so I'd already grown up with that. And there'd been a suicide attempt when I was, uh, I guess an infant or a toddler and uh, that she survived. And then, you know, it seemed like every summer I'd have to visit her at the psych ward at the hospital. And, you know, she would have these cycles between mania and depression and mania and depression. And, um, you know, and, and between the swings, she was perfectly normal, more than normal, an amazing person, but, uh, she, you know, she didn't make it. And so when I was 14, that was kind of it for me. There was no other way to deal with, with that. And you didn't really, pain. you didn't have a parent who also knew what to do, you know, during well, that time. I'd been going to counseling for even at that point, years, mm. I'd already dealt with the divorce. I remember one time she came back. I came home from school one day. I'm like, why is the house clean? And my mom was sitting there, and I guess she, they'd tried to reconcile briefly. And I was so happy to see her. You know, you just take for granted the importance of the stability and the healing power of a nuclear family for, for children. Um, so I lived with my dad. He was a little more stable. He had work. My mom was an artist, literally an artist for work. But in the early 80s, there was a bad recession and she lost that work. The sort of nature of advertising and retailing in general changed. So the little boutiques where she worked for and even then the department store where she worked kind of changed everything. Everything went photo, you know, eventually, of course, digital. Um, I think actually art, there's been a renaissance in that, you know, perhaps there would have been a place for her 
in this world where things have gotten so creative. Um, but there was a dark period, I think, between the 80s and until the early 2000s where there wasn't kind of the, the place for art that there that there should be and still isn't. I mean, I still think it's one of the most important jobs that there is. And we take it for granted and we produce so much garbage in our world. And uh, she was one of these sensitive people. I remember I was probably my 20s and I worked in a restaurant and, you know, we would all drink, of course, after. And I was talking to a friend and talking about my mom, you know. And she said, what if your mom was really just, and this is when I first started thinking about the highly sensitive people. What, yeah. if, what if your mom is just, was just really sensitive and it just all, it clicked, it made sense. Yeah. And I was like, wow, yeah, what if? What what if there wasn't so much wrong with her, but wrong with, with the world. us? Yeah, I'm, the, I'm literally in the middle of, or the beginning middle of um, this new book called Untamed. And she was telling the story as I was getting ready this morning about her daughter who had a meltdown for months after she learned about the polar bears dying because the ice caps were melting. And she said, the opposite of sensitivity isn't bravery, it's insensitivity. And that her daughter being so concerned about this, it was driving her nuts every single day. It was about the polar bears and polar bears. And one night her daughter called her into her room and and she was only in kindergarten. And she said, mom, if, if the polar bears die, what happens to us? And it's like, we used to value sensitive people. We would need them in our society. They were the mystics, the truth tellers, the, you know, the way, the way showers. And now we've just shut down the sensitive people as the crazy ones and the lunatics. And, and it's sad how that has really shifted. Well, exactly. And it, it isn't even as much, you know, what will happen to us. It's we are the polar bears. Yeah. So, you know, when, when we're so connected to, I, I have a theory that even if you were totally unaware of what was happening in, say, Syria, you know, with uh, chemical weapon attacks, uh, you know, which affect women and children to, to a large degree, and even if you didn't know about that consciously, we feel, feel the pain of that. I agree. So I, my whole thing is uh, none of us are okay until we're all okay. And so that's my mission, you know, with addiction treatment. It isn't to fix the people with addiction or alcoholism. Um, it's to, well, first of all, help show them their own power and to hopefully not only remove the stigma around people suffering from addiction, but to elevate them back into their proper place of those way showers and truth tellers. Um, that's who we are. Yeah. So that kind of moves us to like your recovery because you ended up getting sober in the rooms of AA and you were living in Malibu at the time we met. I was newly sober. You were five years sober. And a lot of people ask about what that was like when we met and, um, I'll let you kind of tell the story. People said, like, what was your first impression of Alexis and and what was my first impression of you? Well, I mean, so a mixture of uh, curiosity. That seems like kind of a dry cough you have. Are you okay? Shut up. Um, I don't have coronavirus. Okay. It's a wet cough. I okay. had a sinus infection. If I had coronavirus, you would have it by now. Okay. 
<laughs> so it was a mixture of sort of strange fas- fascination <laughs> combined with, um, I can't think of the word, but you were very kind of full of yourself, which was funny. I mean, <laughs> all things considered, your predicament that you were in. Um, which Evan had no idea about. No, I had no idea know about who I was. But it took you being full of yourself for me to even one, wonder. wonder. <laughs> so you said you came in and you, you know, I don't know if any of you, probably some of you, been to an AA meeting and you go around in a circle and share. And it got to Alexis and she was very beautiful. She had this old kind of movie star thing and the scarfs, you know, around her head and big sunglasses. And I mean, she was definitely very beautiful. And it gets to her and she says, oh my God, I got voted the like best celebrity mugshot in TMZ. I'm like so embarrassed. And I'm like, well, you got what? Oh, no. <laughs> and it's good. It's like humble brag. Mind you, Evan's like five years sober. So the polar opposite of me at this point, because, you know, he's had the spiritual awakening. He's had the moments of clarity. And that's what attracted me to him so much because I had grown up in a home that really, um, that spoke often about spiritual principles. We were just spiritually bypassing, you know, and we weren't really dealing with our issues, but we knew all of the lingo and I was really attracted to it. And Evan had this group of friends, all whom which had numerous years of sobriety, aside from Jared, who I think was still pretty new because we're about a year apart. So he's got 10 years this last round. Yeah. And I've got nine. So, um, you know, I would hear him share about, you know, his, life and his experience. And this was an 11th step meeting, which focuses on prayer and meditation. And I would go to this meeting every day. It was, I was court mandated to go to treatment and every day at noon, Monday through Friday, we would be at this meeting. And I remember looking forward to hearing from him and, um, this, this group of people and, and it was really an attractive thing. Like, okay, if they can do it, I could do it. I just had such a big ego still. And people asked both of us, like, did you relapse? And for me, I've talked about how, um, I did. And that's kind of actually what sparked our relationship because here I was so full of ego, constantly sharing about my first world problems, which was so obnoxious. Meanwhile, I was like inches away from dying. Um, But that wasn't a priority for me, of course. And so um, I'm sharing about all this crap and I ended up a couple of months into treatment doing whippets, which brought me to an emotional bottom, a place where when I returned to that meeting... I was like crawling in. You were changed. I mean, there was no question about it. I, you'd asked if you, if we knew of anyone who could sponsor you. I think we gave you a couple of numbers. You basically disappeared for six months or, or more, came back. You were like a totally different person. And that's mm-hmm. when I thought, oh, wow. I mean, she's beautiful. She's now humbled and she's kind of one of us. She'd, she'd, uh, something had happened along the way and you kind of became one of us. You weren't kind of inconvenienced by having to be with us or somehow better than us. And we would go to coffee after and just like hang out with the group. And it was kind of this group of friends that I still have today. That's like so special to me, but, um, Evan and I quickly developed like a great friendship and, I was dating this really douchey 
<laughs> Marine at the time. And um, Evan went up to um, do this young people of AA convention. I was like borderline young and old now. I know I'm old now, <laughs> but I was still almost. Ten years ago, he yeah, was a lot almost younger. young. No, but you went with the whole group of friends. Mm -hmm. And I obviously was not able to go because I was still in treatment or at the very, I think this is the very end of my treatment. Of your year. Of my year. And uh, Evan texted me and I didn't know who it was because I didn't have his number saved. And um, his friend Jordan was my roommate that lived across the hall. And I said, do you know who this is? And they said, it's Evan. And I was like, <gasps> And that day I broke it off with the Marine. <laughs> I literally remember texting him going like, it was nice knowing you, but I don't think this is going to work out. And I think that you had asked me to dinner. Something or to, we should hang out or might've been dinner. Yeah. I remember I'd hurt my back in jujitsu class when we did go for our first date, whenever that was. And we were going to go to this. Whenever that was, you better fucking remember. No. Wow. <laughs> so. Um, he remembers where, at least. Remember where. I remember we were going to go to this Japanese barbecue. I'd hurt my back so much I could barely stand up straight. I don't know if anyone has a bad sciatica. Mine was, it was so bad. And it would seize up and I would drop to my knees. And uh, the restaurant was full and we had to walk the entire uh, Santa Monica 3rd Street Promenade, which is like three blocks to the other end of this other place. <laughs> True Food Kitchen where we, where we love and we still go. And I could barely stand up straight, but it, and even then at the restaurant, I'd have to get up, you know, to go to the restroom. And I was in so much pain, but I didn't want you to think that I was really old. So I hit it. I don't think you realized. <laughs> he had said that his back hurt, but I, I guess I didn't understand how badly. And then I kept him out until like the wee hours of the morning because after our... um dinner, we ended up going down to the beach by my house and we just had like the most magical night. So I, I knew right then that like this was something special and the age gap and none of that, Evan and I are 15 years apart, almost 16 and like the age gap and none of that bothered me at all. I just we had these conversations that I had never had with someone before. And it was just magic. It was, and it was mostly bonding. You know, when you, you've talked and you've talked and you eventually talk about families and future and, you know, you don't necessarily suggest that this is with each other, but in general, I'd, in my family one day I'd like to, and I'd like, and we both had this shared vision of a normal, happy, loving family without, chaos without disorder and addiction and insecurity and all of those things and to have tradition. And, you know, you basically convinced me that you, you were kind of born to be a mother. Because up until that point, you didn't really care about having kids no, or getting married. Well, I mean, but at the same time, I was, I was getting on and I was, I would definitely consider it. I knew one day. I think since you were 34 I, at the time. Since I was a little kid. You were 35 and I was 20. Right. Since I was a little kid, though, you know, when my dad was mean to me, you know, or something, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be the best dad ever. Like, you know, <laughs> but it was this it was this urge and this desire that I'd had actually from a very young age to one day have 
you know, a clean home, a home where we could have people over, a home just where everyone's comfortable and happy. And and I think we have that. And though I had to take your word for it, because of course someone can, anyone can say that, but you never know until it happens. And so sure enough, we had Harper and well, you're fast forwarding through some stuff. So wow. a couple of dates later. So we're on a date in uh, Los Feliz and Evan asked to meet my mom. And I'm like, okay. So we go to my house and he meets my mom. And then right after he's like, I have to go. And I was like, okay. So he drops me off at my apartment and that night he calls me and this is after like our fourth date. And at this point, I'm like so smitten. I'm playing it cool. But like, I know that I'm in like, like totally head over heels for him. And at this point, he called me and he said, I'm sorry, this is just is not going to work out for me. And I can't see you anymore. And I lost my shit. I lost my shit. And I what I said to <laughs> I don't recommend this for everybody. But it worked for me, I guess. What do I, what I said to him was, um, I just feel like I can't get off the phone without saying this first. And maybe this is crazy and I'll be an idiot and I'll regret this in three days. But I think I've fallen in love with you. And then I hung up the phone. And then what did you think? <laughs> I thought, damn. <laughs> now what am I supposed to do? You know, of course I felt the same way and couldn't get you out of my head. So we slowly but surely figured out how to make it, how to make it work. Yeah. And the reason was because Evan was starting then Acadia. Um, that was the early name for our sober living that he had just begun and his business partners flipped when they found out that he was dating me because they thought that I was like too problematic because of my history and also too new in recovery. Um, you know, which I can understand that, but I was also kind of pissed and was like, why doesn't he have the backbone to just tell him to fuck off? No, <laughs> well, things, we have to be more subtle sometimes. And I mean, are we relitigating this now? <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. No. Um, I apologize. No, but it ended up working out. So let's dive into the treatment center a little bit because I was so attracted, I think, to you because you are just so sensitive and empathetic, but yet really strong and powerful. And I think that those two things, often people don't understand that you can be both. Like Evan is extremely masculine, but also extremely um, sensitive, despite the fact that I've never really seen him cry in our entire, eight, almost eight years this month, or actually next month, we'll have eight years of uh, marriage together. And so we... Um, and that's a miracle in itself, you guys, because we got married after dating for only six months, six months of which. I actually recommend it. I think if you <laughs> date someone too long and, you know, you break up and you get back together, and, you know, you just know it can be an option. You kind of know but each other too well. six of those months, Evan was in Canada and I couldn't go visit him because I was a twice convicted felon. So we had this long distance relationship and one day he calls me up and he's like, hey, 
do you want to get married and elope in Mexico? And I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, (laughs) why not? That's not the craziest shit that I've done in my life. Like what? And it's just worked out so well for us. But, um, Evan and Jared, and they had a previous business partner that eventually moved on, um, created Acadia, which now is no longer Acadia. It's Aloe House. And we, um, what attracted me to the environment was that uh, it was a place where you could be authentically who you were and that was okay. And where you could have fun in recovery. I think for a lot of people, they view recovery as like this doom and gloom. Like I'm never going to enjoy my life again. And they go to AA meetings where there's coffee and the old timers, God bless them, who are, you know, with 20 plus years telling them like, you know, the big book lingo. And you guys really created a space where it was cool to be sober. Yeah. I remember, um, we were sober living. We started working even way back early with Bob Forrest, who referred a client to us and he kind of liked us right away. He, he, he got it. He got us before we kind of got ourselves. I think when we first started, we had this fancy sober living in Malibu. We, I even found one of my like early business plans and we had really nice sheets and all these amenities and everything. <laughs> he thought that was like our, our, our mark, but little did I know there was this mission we were actually here to fulfill. And it was really in our own, I guess, humble way to change the face of addiction treatment in America. So Bob sort of discovers us and you know, we had very few rules. We, we, we weren't into like kind of controlling people or lecturing people or telling them how to live. We weren't kind of pious and we weren't, we, we, we just weren't comfortable with the idea of telling other people how to live their lives. And he said, you feel like you're kind of lazy, right? And I go, yeah, we feel bad. Like we're supposed to have more rules or more structure. And and he goes, no, 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 this is it. This is perfect. And he, he loved that about us because he believes, you know, everyone's different and, and life is the best teacher. And these are still our ideas today. Trust life to show people what they need to see when they need to see it. It's almost like when we think we're, more than what we are, which is kind of just providing a, a space for people who, if they want our help, we're here. We're not, we, we don't know. I mean, I think that there's a problem in addiction treatment where we can become kind of overly institutionalized. We can become overly medicalized. Where it becomes about behavioral modification. Well, yeah, behavioral modification. So I love when Gabor Mate says, I mean, it makes his skin crawl when he hears you know, behavioral health and that it's this really kind of creepy idea that, uh, you know, we're like robots must behave or, or uh, we've actually at, uh, at Aloe House banned the word infraction. I hate that word. This is an infraction. You know, <laughs> you will be getting a write up. Like I hate all of that, that, that if someone is acting out, that's not only normal, that's where kind of the action is. That's, that's where, where the work is. That's, that's where, where the work starts. is. And so as long as we're not affected by that, like I don't need someone personally to behave in a certain way for me to feel okay. Cause that's what can happen at an addiction treatment center where the staff have their own 
problems that they kind of bring to the table, you know, whereas they're supposed to be this kind of impartial, objective, almost like a scientist, and the client is the one with the, they're the object with the problem. But in fact, we all kind of bring our business to the table. So we have to be really okay with ourselves to do good work. So I, I can't have my well-being connected to what you're doing. And don't get me wrong if, you know, we've had clients who've who've left, who've left maybe against our advice, who've gone out, we've heard stories and they've they ended up passing away and I mean that that gets me. That's that's tragic and it's sad and I really wish people didn't do that. Um but Clients, our clients, are struggling and they're working through their stuff. And if we're not patient, if we're not forgiving, if we're not cool with them, then I don't know. I mean, it's a whole just different way of looking at treatment, which is if you look at the history of the way we've treated mental health in the West, it's this really kind of violent, vicious, and savage tradition of you know, we used to bloodlet, we used to spin people, we used to simulate drowning, we used to freeze them, we used to starve them. And there was this brief period in the early 1800s when the Quakers turned it all around. But then again, in the 1900s, we descended back into this very dark, controlling, violent mode of lobotomizing and overly medicating with, you know, things like very heavy-duty medications like Thorazine, um, electromagnetic uh, convulsive shock therapy. And so my argument is there hasn't really been another radical break with that tradition. It's just become a little more subtle. And so the ways we can kind of control or the ways we can kind of do violence through communication um, is, unfortunately, it's it's permeated and saturated the addiction treatment world. Yeah. So you guys kind of created a model on, you know, and we say this all the time on connection and not control. That's right. That's right. Me- meaningful, authentic connections with people and that that's where the healing happens. So, and it actually bears out um, in the, the evidence uh, provided by different studies that, for example, more than any one particular therapeutic modality, it's the therapeutic bond that has the greatest uh, positive effect and impact yeah. on people. So when we started, it was as a sober living and it, and it was really rough. I remember being eight months pregnant and um, Evan was still sleeping at the treatment center because we didn't really have even like a staff with like one staff person back then. And, um, and it's really him and, and Jared and Bob's baby. And, it's grown and grown and grown and it's grown into this like really magical thing. So we used to just be a sober living. And for people who don't know what that is, it's when you're done with treatment, it's a place for you to live in an environment that kind of keeps you accountable and gives you that extra support layer that you may need when you're transitioning from such a, you know, controlled and safe environment to the real world, especially in, uh, when you're newly sober, everything feels amplified times a thousand. And so this is kind of, it's like a cushion, it's a step down. And what was 
I know the decision, but what was the decision to grow and to really scale into a treatment center that now does detox and inpatient, outpatient, partial hospitalization, all of these different levels of care? Well, it was funny. It wasn't through any sort of huge ambition that we had per se. We we wanted to open a little outpatient clinic to cut down really on the, the, the logistical nightmare of taking all of our clients to their various appointments in Santa Monica and, and Calabasas or wherever they were driving all day long. We were driving them to appointment after appointment. And we thought if we could provide those same therapeutic outpatient services ourselves, that would sure be easy. And we made a mistake. We thought we could do it in a house and Malibu, city of Malibu wouldn't give us the zoning clearance. So we'd actually given up at that point. And a friend of mine, he owns an adolescent treatment center, came to Allo one day and we told him what had happened. And he says, why don't you just get licensed and and do inpatient treatment too? And we were like, what? And I mean, this guy's a, a PhD. He's a professor at Pepperdine. He's owned and ran treatment centers for like, years. We're two knuckleheads yeah. from Canada, like who have no experience other than the fact that we're sober. How are we going to do this? Well, exactly. And so <laughs> it seemed crazy, but he somehow he believed in us and and thought we could do it. So we we did it. And of course, you know, the, those are our weaknesses. And so we've just uh, over the years assembled who we really believe are a dream team yeah. of uh, masters, doctoral level therapists, psychiatrists, doctors. Uh, some of the best in the field. Yeah. Yeah. And people who are all behind the same like mission and model, you know. And they've all found us and that's what's been remarkable. This thing is so much bigger than us and it's like, like attracts like. There's these people who are all attracted to this new paradigm for doing addiction treatment. And again, it all, there's this idea again, like, like Bobby pointed out that we feel like, well, maybe we're being lazy. We should do more. We should have more structure. And also, of course, there's that part of us that wants to control when we get scared in particular, our first impulse is to control a situation. And so when our clients scare us, uh, sometimes they do, you know, that first impulse can be to control a situation. But of course we can't, we can't control another human being. We can't control life. It's unrealistic. And so, and there's other ideas that we really were trying to question like, well, wait, aren't we um, encouraging uh, bad behavior or this or that? And all, all these ideas, like they're just, I think, meant to be questioned. I mean, even that, are we encouraging bad behavior? Well, I know that in life, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. So as a measure, it seems like the law of the universe doesn't line up with this sort of more childish notion that like bad, you know, must punish. Like, so there's just no room for kind of this more, I guess, low And just meeting people where thinking. they're at. Absolutely. Um, one, you know, case comes to mind. We had a patient that... I was so depressed and, and she'd gotten sober and she was with us for a number of months and, and everyone just kept saying she should be doing groups and doing this and she needs to do this and da, da, da. And everyone's response was, no, let's just meet her where she's at. Let's just, you know, the, the treatment team agreed. We're just going to meet her where she's at. And one day over Christmas, I showed up to, and I had sat down with this girl and, 
been in meetings with her, you know, case management team. And we're talking about every single different option under the sun. And I was asking her, can you just get to the beach for 10 minutes a day? Can you just stick your feet in the sand for 10 minutes a day and feel the sun on your face? She couldn't even do that. And this was months into treatment. And, uh, you know, and I hadn't really heard anything. We have a lot of clients and her team was taking care of her. And I, I was, you know, there to support when needed. And it had been about three months. And all of a sudden I walk into this, walk out from the bathroom from our holiday uh, party. And here's this girl singing karaoke in the yard, like fully lights on energy, jumping all around, having fun with her friends. And all it took was being patient and empathetic and meeting her where she's at and being loving and supportive no matter what, even when she didn't want to do anything that we had asked of her, you know, we still were patient. And guess what? Her parents are like, oh my God, I cannot believe the difference in my child. And, and that's one experience. There have been hundreds and hundreds of cases that, you know, the toughest of the tough that have come to us and we're a dual diagnosis facility too. So we treat both mental health and addiction and most of it really is mental health and addiction is the secondary. You know, they come into us thinking that the primary issue is the substance, but it's usually not. And so it just really um, is incredible to me, like seeing the miracles, you know, and had that girl been punished for not going to group, been punished for not, you know, putting in quote unquote effort, been, you know what I mean? Been ridiculed, been shamed, been forced to do things that she wasn't ready for. I don't think we would have had the same outcome. It's about, it's about love and it's about compassion and actually etymological root of the word compassion comes from the Latin to uh, suffer with. You know, mm. we suffer with our clients. Our staff are incredible. They sacrifice so much of their well-being because, of course, you know, although we, we're we together in our own right, you know, so that we don't kind of take on that energy, but we're human We we're, and we're often highly empathetic. So we take on that pain. We feel that pain. Yeah. And in fact, to do good work, to be compassionate, we feel we need to feel that yeah. pain. And yeah. and none of us are okay until all of us are okay. Yeah. One thing that I really wanted to dive into, I don't know if you're open to it, is what's happening in the treatment world and just kind of the trajectory of, um, you know, like Obamacare passed and we kind of saw this like boom in treatment centers opening everywhere and the struggles that are taking place in in the community. Well, I think you're referring to a lot of people taking advantage of, mm. uh, say in this case, insurance money and basically doing insurance fraud and abuse. Uh, you know, we've heard of stories of patient brokering. Um, Can you explain what patient brokering is for people well, who don't sure. know? So, you know, not only will someone get paid to send someone to a treatment center, but the uh, clients themselves will often be paid to go to a treatment center. They'll be paid money to bring others to a treatment center and they'll be paid to relapse, to kind of reset someone's 
benefits to continue to uh, profit off of that person's insurance. It's it's terrible. Um, it's the you, you read a lot of stories about it. I thank God. I think it's um, that most places are are good places. We're all mm-hmm. just trying to do good work and uh, and figure it out and figure out this you know very very complicated problem of addiction. Um, but really, I think the bigger problem and why that's even a thing in the first place is the for-profit healthcare in in America. And so the uh, insurance companies are profiting these, and they're profiting by cutting costs. That's why they'll deny you coverage. They bring in a lot of money and they need to spend less. And so what these other treatment centers have done is they've brought in all this insurance money and then tried to offer as little as possible so as to uh, pocket the difference. We are kind of officially, or rather uh, unofficially, a non-profit where, uh, just because we can't do that. We reinvest everything we make back into our people and providing the best quality care that, that we can, but not everyone can kind of be trusted to to do the right thing or have that desire to do things better and at, at any cost, and, and that's what we do. But I think we're going to have that problem, and it's goes for surgical centers and uh, different medical devices and durable hardware. You know, you hear the stories out of Florida with Medicare and, and uh, Medicaid fraud. So I guess, you know, it does happen even in a, in a, in a public system. So maybe pulling out more broadly, maybe it's just a problem in America. And we like to, um, we'd like to take advantage of, of people when they're at their most vulnerable. Uh, and then, at the same time, here during the coronavirus pandemic, we see the opposite too, and we see our nature um, expressing itself where 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 people want to help each other and do the right thing. And I, I think it's a very interesting time now, where where all of that, uh, everything is kind of on full display and projected out for for us all to kind of look at and examine and hopefully do some uh, giant reset where we can kind of decide what we want to take with us, you know, into this, this new future, what we want to leave behind. And, uh, you know, I have, I have some ideas around that. I think a lot of us are thinking about it nowadays too. Yeah. I think that, um, this, uh, pandemic that we're dealing with right now is really illuminating a lot of our our cracks that we kept putting band-aids over and it's just no longer sustainable anymore. And hopefully people will walk away from this with a softer heart, you know, and more empathy because I think everyone's feeling this, whether you've dealt with mental health struggles in the past or not. Um, Isolation does lead to depression and anxiety. We're not meant to live I talk about this all the time, as lonely as we do. And I think that it's just really illuminating the way that the for-profit healthcare industry and the way that um, we've currently been operating in this. um, You know, the idea of capitalism was great. And I get it. 
but it's just not really working anymore, when it's not working for the people anymore, when there's these monopolies now where, um, you know, the people actually really get taken advantage of. And, you know, and you see that in every industry, it's heartbreaking for um, us to see it in ours, though. And, you know, I think that we're the first to say that there needs to be more regulation in our industry and that if it's not going to come from the government, then then maybe it needs to come from ourselves, you know, holding each other accountable. Well, and it's such an interesting time because, of course, uh, at least we think we've figured out addiction and that it stems from all of this isolation and not not this now, but the the isolation that has led to it. The, the kind of commodification of everything. When, when the virus first hit and they started canceling events, the first thing I realized is, whoa, almost every single social interaction we have as humans has been commercialized and commodified. Um, one of the most interesting things, I think, looking at this pandemic now with the uh, isolation and the sheltering in place is really how uh, little it's affected a lot of people. Uh, you know, that they're like, oh, this is perfect, or I do this every day. I mean, that that there's so little interaction Mm. occurring anyway that literally sheltering in place is kind of just the status quo. We we go to work. We work some terrible job for the corporate monopoly. We come home. We're exhausted. We spend an hour with our kids. We put them in bed. And we fall asleep unconscious and we get up and we do it again. I had an idea actually through all of this. Why doesn't the U.S. Treasury buy Amazon and it becomes a public utility? Because indeed, the other day we live in a little cul-de-sac with like six houses. I saw an Amazon truck, a FedEx truck, and a UPS truck. And it's true. This is super efficient. Uh, I know Amazon started selling books. When I was a little kid, I mean, my dad wanted to go buy the BFG, Raw Doll, because uh, I wanted to read it. We had to get in the car, drive for 20 minutes downtown, find parking, um, go find the book. Sometimes the book we wanted, they didn't have. We'd have to order it anyway. Then we'd have to, they'd bring it into the store. A week later, we'd have to come drive back, find parking, get the book, drive home. There's this idea that Amazon put out a business, the bookstore like that, uh, in, in Vancouver where I grew up, Duthie's Books. Um, but Amazon put out a business that actually shut down Duthie's Books, which were the big box retailers, the Barnes & Nobles. So Amazon has destroyed not the mom and pop's business, but the big box retail businesses. It's super efficient. So we buy it. It's owned by the people. We obviously start paying uh, each other better for it. We automate as much of it as possible. And all of the dividends, all of the profits that are made, some are, of course, reinvested back into the company. And then uh, that's where you get your guaranteed basic income that if we're going to become so efficient with our logistics and delivery systems and production systems. And millions and, and millions of people are going to be out of work. Well, right. But this time we've also many of us, I know it's a a luxury, but have been able to spend more time with our families or reading or, you know, doing a hobby. And we would have that time. So with all this time that we save from 
from automation, why not benefit from it? The only way to benefit from it is to start buying these big monopolies and making them basically public utilities. Mm. So I will be running for president in 2024. That's he my platform. Should. He's so good. Yeah. Too bad he was born in Canada. Yeah. Um, you and Andrew Yang would have made a great team. This is the missing piece of his, of it, his puzzle. It is the missing yeah. piece of his puzzle. I didn't get to him before you he dropped out. You need to be out. his campaign manager, yeah. if only. Um, I think I'm going to wrap with that because we're going to start a whole nother episode right now where anyone we can go steal, into the Q&A. Anyone can steal my idea. He too. doesn't care. I don't care. He just really wants people to start to be able, because the whole idea is this, right? Automation is happening, period, whether we like it or not. It's great. It should save us time. It should save us time. And that's exactly what it was used for, right? Agriculture it, was the first sort of automation that there was. Before that, it was backbreaking work. Guys would have to go out, hunt the woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers. The women would have to gather berries mm. and whatever was cooking around with often babies on their backs to doing all of that. It was hard work. We literally had no time but to hunt and gather. Then came along agriculture where we could actually produce a surplus and it freed up uh, time for people to do other things, to get into the uh, priesthood or uh, to become artists, to become craftspeople. Um, that wasn't possible, not certainly to the degree, before agriculture, which was the first technological advance. So each technological advance should actually create time and space for us to do other things. But instead, we're working two, three jobs. I mean, the world is waking up and it's the young people. I mean, if you're on Twitter following the sort of younger millennials and some Gen Zs, I mean, socialism is more popular than it's been in years. Obviously, I don't even agree necessarily with calling it that because there's so much baggage that comes with that, but just a radical new way of looking at things. No more status quo. Everything must change. Addiction is caused by this, this. Yes. this way we've been living for well, 10,000 years, but yeah. it's gotten particularly bad and you've seen addiction it's levels rise bad since the industrial revolution. The, yes, it's because of these huge corporations and corporate interests and lobbyists and that, all of that, this chaos. That couldn't care less, less about, about us you. or the environment. They don't care really about abortion. They don't care about the climate. They don't care about any of these things. They care about making money and that's it. Well, uh, that was leaving you guys on a high note. Evan and I are going to do a Q&A episode after this. And um, until you hear me again, I just want to say that we love you guys very, very much. And uh, we are just encouraging you all to, you know, be gentle and kind and patient with yourselves. And, and each other. And each other. And yeah, thanks for coming on. This week's affirmation is, I am in awe of what my body is capable of. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at recoveringfromreality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 